Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Welcome to 2022, and I'm glad you're here with us because it's a whole new year with a whole new agenda for tax legislation. Ah, who am I kidding? We are still talking about the same thing, the thing that we talked about all of 2021 and most of 2020, and that's the Biden tax plan, of course, or more precisely, at least initially here in 2022, the vestiges of the Biden tax plan as currently embodied by the Build Back Better Act. Can Congress pick that legislation up again this year and break the impasse, that deadlock that required them to call it quits last December? Last December, I promised you that if Congress was talking about Build Back Better Act this year, well, so would we, and so we are today. With so much said already, could we possibly bring a new angle to you today on Build Back Better? Well, I think so. Today's topic is evaluating, or maybe re-evaluating, the Build Back Better Act's effective dates, especially in the context of the calendar having now flipped from 2021 to 2022. Does a new year mean new effective dates, or is Congress prepared to ride with the effective dates as presented to us in the Build Back Better Act last year? Well, it's complicated. And to help me sort through that question, we are joined today by two of my colleagues, one of whom you've met here before, and a new face, or voice, I should say, to this program. We welcome back Danielle Rolfus, international tax partner here in KPMG's Washington National Tax Office, and former international tax counsel in Treasury's Office of Tax Policy. And we also welcome Jim Soule, a pass-through tax partner, also here in our Washington National Tax Office, and also former associate tax legislative counsel in the Office of Tax Policy. So with Jim covering the domestic angle and Danielle covering the international aspects, we'll do our best to sort through the effective date considerations of the calendar having now turned to 2022. All right, so Jim, first question for you. So let's just start on the domestic side. What are some of the key effective dates from the bill last year that we should be thinking about now that the calendar has flipped over to 2022 that might be you know, of concern either to the tax writers or of course to taxpayers? Three buckets that I look, look at on the domestic side, John, starting with, there are a couple for taxable years beginning after December 31, 2020. So this is relevant for 2021. The first is the excess business loss limitation provision, the provision that limits business losses to $500,000 for individuals. The proposed change would make the provision permanent and make it actually a new loss limitation regime. So they actually change the way the loss limitation works so that each year your carry forward gets retested under 461L. That is effective for the taxable year 2021, as is the revision to the SALT cap. So we've got two provisions in there on the domestic side that tax reporting for this year would be affected for. And obviously, as they move forward into 2021, gets harder and harder to hold effective dates there, given impact on estimated taxes. Well, and I guess for 2021, we're actually past all of that. The second bucket is generally effective date after December 31, 2021. These are the rates that the high income surcharge, the 5% on adjusted gross income above 10 million, 3% above 25 million, the tax on stock buybacks, that's the 1% tax on the fair market value of stock repurchases, the broadening of the 1411 net investment income tax so that they effectively pick up everything that isn't otherwise caught by the self-employment tax or employment tax. 
and another just random one, deduction for worthless partnership interest. Those are all effective essentially for taxable years beginning after 1231-21. So we would now be into the period that those were proposed to be effective for. And then finally, a couple in the effective taxable years beginning after December 31, 2022, the alternative tax on corporations, the 15% of adjusted financial statement income. Obviously, that's a big one. And we have a one-year delayed effective date there. Similarly, the change to 163J for partnerships. Right now, 163J operates at the partnership level. They would change that so that it operates at the partner level. That has a delayed effective date to 2022. That obviously is tied to 163N, which I'm sure Danielle will talk about too. So that's fascinating. So in the domestic category, we have got provisions that are applicable, at least as it's currently written in the bill that we've been dealing with last year, would be effective 2021. Some that would be effective this year, 2022, and some that would be effective next year, 2023. So let me just start with that first category, because that's really fascinating. We've got one taxpayer friendly and one taxpayer unfriendly. The loss limitation, 461L, taxpayer unfriendly. If they don't move that date, taxpayers would have to, if this bill were to become law this year, go back into 2021, take those losses that they may have otherwise thought they could utilize or actually utilize, and now have to undo that. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, if you have somebody filing their tax return right at the beginning of the year, they presumably would file based upon laws that exist right now. And if that effective date was to hold and this passes sometime, you know, in the next couple of months, they would presumably need to amend. The reason for the effective date being retroactive as it is, as I understand it, is that last year was the first date that provision actually was effective. It got delayed as a result of some of the COVID legislation. So I think they were thinking, well, this is how the provision should have worked in the first place. So let's just make it this way for all times. But obviously, as we move forward and you get further and further past that year, to me, it gets harder to justify holding on to that effective date. That's interesting. So as they reevaluate, and by they, I mean tax writers, you know, should we move effective dates forward now that we've come to another year? They may convince themselves that, you know, this one was always based on some other criteria. And so we should stick with that date. And in the case of the state and local one, look, Congress has never been afraid about giving retroactive tax relief. Retroactive tax increases, that bugs them, but retroactive tax relief, you know, that's something they sometimes get squirrely on. So maybe they just end up sticking with where they are on salt. Okay. That's super interesting. Thanks, Jim. Now, let me, Danielle, let me flip it to you. Let's talk about international. What are some of the key dates that people should be thinking about now that we've gone over to 2022 that may be under consideration for, do we stick with the ones that we've seen in the bill that we had last year, or should they be reconsidering those? Well, like on the domestic front, I think you can divide the key dates into really three buckets. The big headline on the international front that folks may have focused on was when they pushed many of the international provisions out one year. That was a change when we went from the Ways and Means draft to the House bill that they pushed out a number of the key provisions so they wouldn't begin until taxable years that begin after 2022, so during 2023. And it it is a mixed bag in terms of favorable and unfavorable. I would highlight, Jim already alluded to on the unfavorable front, the 163N proposal, which would affect both inbounds and outbounds unfavorably by denying U.S. interest deductions where they're perceived as over-leveraged in the U.S., that 
is proposed even under the House version of the bill to not kick in until taxable years that begin during 2023. So not clear there why pushing, having delayed the enactment a couple of months would necessarily change that 2023 effective date. The other big provisions that were pushed out, the rate changes, the rate hikes that are proposed for both guilty and fitty were pushed out a year to begin during taxable years during 2023. And then all the country by country proposals, both that guilty should get computed on a country by country basis and imposing that the foreign tax credit limit be computed on a country by country basis for all baskets. Of course, in those provisions that were pushed out, like I said, they're not all bad. There are a number of favorable provisions that were baked in there, particularly in the context of guilty giving a carry forward for guilty foreign tax credits. Under TCJ, guilty foreign tax credits expire if they're not used in the current year, but these proposed changes would have pushed, would have given a five-year carry forward for guilty foreign tax credits during the budget window and then eventually becomes 10 years. Another really big one is eliminating the foreign tax credit haircut that applies to guilty taxes. And then for some taxpayers, super important favorable change is to get rid of the taxable income limit on the Section 250 deduction, which is the way that you get to a reduced rate for guilty and fitty. Today, if you're losing money, you don't get that reduced rate and your guilty and fitty effectively is taxed at the full corporate rate. So if you're in a loss position, that may be the most important change in the international title of the bill. And it is already pushed back to, again, a 2023 effective date. The last one I would highlight there on the favorable front, again, for losers, is a provision to allow loss carry forwards in guilty. Although I think that was the big headline when many of the international provisions got pushed out a year, and there are others that I didn't highlight here, not all the big policy changes were pushed out. So BBBA would make quite a number of changes to the B, which is the base erosion anti-abuse tax enacted as part of the TCJA. And most of those changes would have been effective for taxable years that begin after 2021. Those again are a mixed bag of favorable and unfavorable changes with probably the most unfavorable change was the proposal to treat certain COGS, certain payments that are reductions of gross receipts because their cost of goods sold today are not subject to the beat, but the BBBA would have changed that favorable result to provide that some of those payments for cost of goods sold are beatable payments. On the really favorable front, I think taxpayers are going to be on different sides of whether these changes on balance are good or bad. On the favorable front would have been a new exception that would say that payments that are subject to U.S. tax, including U.S. guilty tax, or to a sufficient foreign tax are not subject to the beat. And those new exceptions would also apply to cost of goods sold. So for U.S. parented companies, that exception that would say that payments that are subject even just to guilty tax would by and large, I think, take them out of the beat, making these changes that are being proposed effective under the version we were looking at last month for taxable years beginning after 2021 on balance favorable. For inbound companies where the cost of goods sold exception is very important, it makes I'm sure that they're on balance unfavorable, maybe unless the cost of goods sold is subject to a sufficient level of foreign tax. Now, 
those are the changes in B. There were quite a number of policy changes proposed in B. Those are the ones that were proposed to have the more immediate effective date. Others were proposed to be delayed that I think would be viewed on the whole as unfavorable, like eliminating the base erosion percentage that was pushed out a year. And then the provisions to increase the beat rate over time were not proposed to go into effect until tax years that begin after 2022. So there was already delay baked in for those unfavorable changes. But on balance, the ones that are being proposed there to go into effect sooner rather than later, I, I think taxpayers are going to be on different sides of the question of whether they're, you know, on balance, good or bad. The third bucket in terms of effective dates on international that I would highlight is just a number of provisions that were either framed as loophole closers or had a legacy as a technical correction, maybe dating back to, for example, the Brady technical corrections bill following the TCJA. A number of those changes are proposed to apply to taxable years beginning after the date of enactment. So it's drafted as sort of a dynamic effective date. Or like in the case of the new inversion rules, some of those provisions would apply to transactions that occurred after the date of enactment. So again, a more dynamic effective date there. So I think, you know, it's it's hard to make generalizations about what we would expect to happen with the effective dates in the international provision, given that we have such a mismatch of them. First of all, it's so complicated, right? I mean, obviously the basis for this conversation is now that we've gone to 2022, should they move forward all the effective dates by one year? I mean, it's sort of the question that, of course, everybody's asking. And it's kind of easier when you have that, you know, when we talked about with Jim, where Congress doesn't mind doing taxpayer favorable things retroactive, but they don't like to do retroactive tax increases. And so maybe it'll be half and half. Some are put forward, but the taxpayer friendly stuff will remain with the current effective dates. But when you talk about the way these things are so hopelessly intertwined, Danielle, they can't really do that, right, on all the things you talked about, because the tax favorable changes and the unfavorable ones in many cases are hopelessly combined in a single provision. It would be almost impossible, right, to try and break them apart. Either they're all going to stick with the current date or they're all going to get pushed forward to a future date. Is that a reasonable assumption? I agree with you. I think even in the case of, for example, the changes I highlighted in B, where it really is for those more immediate changes, a real mixed bag. And I didn't even mention all the changes. There are big changes to NOLs. Taxpayers will be on both sides of that question. I think inertia probably favors keeping what is currently proposed to go into effect for taxable years beginning after 2021 as a set. They either hold on to that effective date because it gets passed early in the year and they feel comfortable with a little bit of retroactivity, or they all get pushed collectively to taxable years that begin after the date of enactment as just another example of an effective date that they could adopt. But I don't think they're going to start handpicking and choosing out of those beat changes to accelerate the favorable ones and defer the unfavorable ones. That question is in the eye of the beholder, first of all, of what exactly is favorable and what's unfavorable. That's a good point. Some taxpayers may be rooting for the effective dates to stay exactly as they are, while others might say, hey, get out another year. That's a really nice point. Let me ask you another question, Danielle. So for those proposals that were always intended to take effect in 2023, right, we saw those get pushed out in the House version of the bill, as you outlined. 
a lot of those are tied up in the action around Pillar 2. So just wondering if, for example, what if Congress did decide to move everything forward a year? So those provisions would now be effective 1-124. Would that have an impact, do you think, on the negotiations and the consensus around Pillar 2 outside the U.S.? I think it would. If Congress pushed out the date to 1-124, it's speculation, of course. The OECD and the inclusive framework have currently expressed a commitment to bringing on board the pillar two changes, which is the country by country implementation at a 15% rate. It's the rest of the world's version of guilty. They've committed to bringing those changes online in 2023. So if Congress at this point, before any of that had been put in action, pushed out the guilty changes to 2024, it seems reasonable to think that the rest of the world might blink on what is already perceived as a really aggressive, effective date for those pillar two changes. I think a lot of commentators have really seriously questioned whether 2023 is achievable, even just in the EU for countries that even are enthusiastic about the changes, what has to happen of get a directive in place and then get that directive transcribed into domestic law. That timetable was already extremely aggressive. I think if Congress pushed our changes off to 2024, maybe the most likely outcome would just be that the rest of the world would breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief and pillar two would come into effect in 2024 instead of 2023. That's pure speculation because they have not tied that aggressive effective date of 2023 or the timing on the guilty changes. But I think everybody sees the U.S. changes being linked to the ability for the rest of the world to pull off pillar two. And certainly if the U.S. deferred, I suspect the rest of the world might follow suit. I don't think it would be detrimental if it was actually enacted, but with a delayed effective date. I personally don't think that in and of itself would be detrimental to the momentum they have in terms of trying to get pillar two on a road to implementation. It just might delay it. Right, because it would be enacted, right? It's in the Internal Revenue Code. We now have the modifications to our system that would, as you say, be Pillar 2 compliant, presumably. So at least you would say that. Yes, maybe we have to wait a year, but at least we've got that far. Yep, I got it. All right, Jim, let me come back to you. Let's assume we're in a world where Congress just, because they get squirrely about enacting retroactive tax increases, and they say, look, the only way we're going to get consensus on Build Back Better is to push everything out a year. So all those dates that you just outlined, everything gets pushed out one year further so that we maybe have 11 or 10 months before they become effective. Do you think they would consider any kind of transitional language in there, either taxpayer-friendly or unfriendly? Of the provisions that we discussed, I would doubt it. I look at something like the 1% tax on stock buybacks, and I could see them doing a mid-year effective date on something like that, which is kind of like a transition. Otherwise, I would just be surprised. We look at what they did with the current legislation, and it started several months in advance of the end of the year with most of these provisions being effective for 2022, and there weren't any sort of anti-abuse transition rules. We had the capital gains rate provision where the, the effective date kept moving in order for people to keep from trying to sell early. But with the provisions that are in there right now, it just doesn't seem to me that there's much there that I think that they would try to use transition rules for. 
You know, the funny thing is from experience, often those transition rules come in because the revenue estimators will tell you when they estimate this, like if we're going to give the world 10 months before this is effective, the estimators might come back with the assistance of the joint committee advisors to say, you know, people might do X, Y, or Z that, and I'm going to have to reduce your score accordingly. And in those instances, we often see tax writers come back to, okay, well, maybe we need some sort of rule. But short of that, look, this is complicated enough. I, I hear what you're saying, Jim, like why go back and create these transition rules if they don't feel like they absolutely have to have them. All I can really see people, for most of these provisions, broadening the 1411 NII, the high income surcharge, the alternative tax for corporations, all you can really see people doing there is accelerating income. And kind of like they were worried about with the capital gains rate increase, people selling assets early. But the only sort of transition rule you can do there is not really transition, but just make an earlier effective date. So I worry about that a little bit on the stock buyback because it's easy enough to do in that situation. You can just mark it to the transaction date. But for the others where their annual calculations just doesn't seem very likely to me. Well, the funny thing is, depending on some of the conventions that the Joint Committee uses, if what you really are encouraging people to do is accelerate income, you might actually enhance your revenue estimate. If they account for that in their score, that actually might help because people do this kind of transactions, right? Okay, Danielle, same question for you. What kind of transition rules might we see in place for 2022 if, as we're speculating here, this hypothetical that everything kind of gets delayed one year? Well, I think because many of the international provisions already were deferred one year, the drafters already had to think about this. And we actually did get something like that when guilty was pushed to 2023. At the same time as they pushed the defective date out on guilty, a new provision added regulatory authority to address transfers between related parties or amounts that are paid or accrued between related parties. And it's not clear on its face that that new reg authority is targeted at transition planning. It doesn't mention the gap period at all, but we have heard that, you know, it did come in at the same time as the delay in the guilty provisions. And we have heard some suggestion that there is a link there, that it was motivated by some concerns about transition planning. In contrast to what Jim was saying about in situations where, well, what is the transition plan? If you're just accelerating income, what do you really do? You need to just push the effective date forward if that's your concern. Guilty is unique because under the current system where you can have cross-country blending of foreign tax credits and cross-country blending of losses and income, there was a potential to accelerate income without necessarily paying a U.S. tax cost. And so maybe it isn't surprising that the drafters thought, wow, if we're going to put a whole year, as you said, John, there really is going to be a revenue impact if we don't do something or provide some authority there to address planning where taxpayers would engage in related party transactions, to try to accelerate income or step up basis. So we already do, I think, have something there that is drafted with the deferral potentially in mind. But it's also telling where they didn't draft transition rules because, for example, the rate hike for FIDI, they've increased the FIDI rate. Today it's about 13 and an eighth. And under the proposal, the rate would go up to a little over 15%. And that was already contemplated in the House bill. And they didn't add to any transition rules or anti-abuse type of authority for the reasons that Jim suggested. Like, what is the planning you're worried about in the context of a rate increase to FIDI? Is it accelerating income? And I think it's hard to write an anti-abuse rule to address taxpayers that are actually 
accelerating income. It's creating U.S. tax obligations and is a transaction that's being recognized in the U.S. tax system. I think it's noteworthy where we actually have gotten these provisions already and where we didn't. And I kind of doubt on the beat front, which is maybe where there'd be a new question that wasn't presented by the already deferral. Similarly, it's not clear to me what a transition rule would look like, what the kind of mid-year planning that folks would be worried about there. You're right. They had an opportunity to do this. And, you know, these people, I know them, you know, these are some sophisticated folks that were thinking about these international proposals. I'm absolutely certain they thought about, do we need to have anti-abuse or transition rules when they wrote it? And they chose not to, for whatever reason, we don't know, but it's not that they didn't think about it. They made a conscious decision not to. Now, maybe something will change in the coming weeks or months to change their mind, but you're right. It's not like they hadn't thought about this already, at least on the international provisions. All right, so here's my last question, and it's really for both of you because you both worked at Treasury. We spent a lot of time thinking about what congressional tax writers would do, but they're not the only people at the table. You have Treasury and the IRS thinking hard about these things from an administrability point of view, you know, and other concerns. What are some of the thoughts that they might be having about retroactivity? For example, Jim, you know, you talked about state and local applying in 2021. If this isn't enacted until 2022, would that require people to amend returns? Like those sort of things, what kind of concerns do you think people having? Clearly, administrability is a concern here. Things like, are you going to require people to file amended returns? As you say, also getting forms ready for new provisions. The alternative tax on corporations by reference to financial statement income. The forms that will be required for that will be significant and the development of those forms are not easy. Now that is a provision that is not currently slated to be effective until 2023, but if this gets pushed well into the year, you need time to do things like that. In addition, there are certain of these provisions, I'm thinking about the 461L provision specifically, that have pieces of them that operate only by reference to uh, regulations. So there, your laws carry forward to the extent it's a trust or a state carries out to the beneficiaries when the trust or estate liquidates, but only under rules described in regulations. And you actually need regulations to make the provision work. So having time to do things like that and how many of those sorts of provisions or regulatory requirements are in these provisions, I think is something they've got to have their eye on too. Danielle, what about you? Well, I'm just reminded that TCJA, I think was it signed into law on December 22nd and all of the provisions I was worried about were effective 1-1 and taxpayers were trying to account for them with their first quarterly filings. I'm suspect at Treasury, there is a little bit of a relief, both Treasury and IRS, a little bit of relief on the international front at having already been given, as Jim pointed out, the delayed effective dates, giving more time to develop some regulations to implement these rules, develop the forms before they're actually into effect. So if the clock starts eating away at that window, I'm sure there is concern about having kind of a repeat of, frankly, some of the chaos that we all experienced in 2018 when we had an effective statute without effective implementing guidance. The other point, I think, just on the international front is Treasury is well aware of the planning that ensued after the TCJA was adopted due to the gap periods that were in the effective dates in TCJA. And here it was in particular with respect to guilty that fiscal year filers and also calendar year filers that had 1130 foreign corps 
had a big gap period where guilty didn't yet apply to them and there was quite a lot of planning going on. So although, you know, I've highlighted here that they added in some reg authority that I believe was intended to address that gap period planning, I have no doubt that Treasury and IRS are engaged in thinking about where do they need reg authority to address gap period planning because that, you know, that wasn't so long ago that they ended up without the reg authority that they thought they needed and have tried to fill that gap by writing regs that I think everybody would agree required some stretching of the statute because it left a pretty big hole in the fisc. Yeah, the 2017 example is really a good example and, you know, precedent here. I mean, you're right. 2018 was chaos and what a monumental task by Treasury and the IRS to get out the guidance that they did. But, you know, as one of them, I remember describing it to me is we're building the airplane while we're flying it versus, you know, in this case, they'd at least be able to build parts of the airplane on the ground, you know, before they have to take to the area if it wasn't effective for months later. So I'm sure that would be helpful that they could really think long and hard about the guidance itself. And that would be a good thing. And then, as you say, Jim, the administratability of filing amended returns. And, you know, we talked about the 461L example, really complex stuff. And I'm sure, I am sure that they are making that their, their views known uh, on some of those points, because as we said, they are at the table. They're not writing it, but they are there providing advice and counsel. So that's going to be an interesting thing to watch should this actually get enacted this year. Well, I want to thank you both. That was really, really interesting. This is a question that we've already started to get. I have a feeling we're going to be asked over and over and over in the coming weeks and months. What are the effective dates? So it's great to get to put down a marker on this already. So thank you very much. Well, that leaves us all with a lot to think about. Effective dates are obviously a more complicated question than it might appear. If you thought the solution was just to add one year to everything, well, maybe, but maybe not. Capitol Hill tax writers are gonna have to think long and hard about their options. And consider this, the answer might be a moving target. The right answer here in early January very well might not be the right answer if these discussions carry on into February or March or April or, well, you get the idea. So as we discuss Build Back Better this year, yeah, we'll be asking what's in, what's out, and so on. But we'll also be asking the thing that's in, well, when does that thing apply? And lastly, don't forget this cold hard fact. As you were ringing in the new year at midnight, raising a toast to the year going out and to the one coming in, perhaps you also took a moment to consider that at that very moment, we were now beginning to capitalize and amortize R&D costs and to calculate our interest limitations based on EBIT, not EBITDA. Okay, actually, please tell me you didn't do that. But still, you get my point. It's not a pleasant thought. I mentioned 174, that's the R&E amortization rule, and 163J, that's the interest limitation rule. I mention it in this context because if you followed the tax extender saga over the years, you know that Congress almost always provides taxpayer relief retroactively. Of course, Section 174 is in the Build Back Better Act, and Section 163J is not. So you'd expect Section 174 to get a January 1, 2022 retroactive effective date. Because if not, wouldn't it have been better for the r &E folks to hold out for a year-end extenders package and to get coupled with 163J and the other legions of extenders and get retroactive relief? It would seem very odd to give 174 a worse outcome because Congress thought relief was such a good idea, it should be included in the Build Back Better Act versus a year-end extenders package. Look, I know this is a really long windup to the point I'm trying to make here, but it's this. If we get Build Back Better enacted this year, it's reasonable to expect 174 to be in there. 
If it is in there, it's also reasonable to expect that provision to be retroactive back to January 1st, 2022. Really, no matter when Build Back Better might be passed. And if that's true, we've now crossed the retroactivity Rubicon. And does that open the door to other retroactive provisions, either taxpayer friendly or otherwise? Well, maybe. But you see, sometimes these decisions are less policy based and more politically based. In other words, what combination of provisions and effective dates has the all-important 50 votes? That, of course, is exactly the question Senate Democrats are scrambling to answer here early in 2022. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, comments, and suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.